Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Hi, I'm your host, Jack McLean, and today my guest is Justin Crow, Head of Human Performance at the Melbourne Victory Football Club. Prior to working at Melbourne, Justin worked at Paralympics Australia for two years, a physiotherapy consultant for TAC, an Australian Institute of Sport Project Lead, High Performance Manager at the SM Football Club, and Rehabilitation Coach at the Collingwood Football Club. Highlights from this episode, we discussed comparing leadership styles from a people-first philosophy to performance-first. When making challenge decisions, think of the end in mind importance of going through the health of list for each player on training days, why testing athletes is a pet hate for Justin, the importance of understanding athletes' learning styles for effective coaching, and Justin's prepare over protect philosophy. Before we start this episode, join me on our next PLP live coaching event as we have one for Australian Rules footballers on the 26th of August, all about AFL game day recovery, and one for strength conditioning coaches what you really need to know as a strength conditioning coach on Friday the 19th of August. For more information and to save 50% on these two events, head over to preparelikeapro.com and sign up for our email newsletter. Let's get into today's episode with Justin Crow. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Justin. Thanks for jumping on, mate. No worries. Thanks for having me, Jack. Let's uh, dive into the beginning of your career, mate. At what age did you discover you wanted to work with elite athletes? Yeah, good one. My guy ends up enrolling as a physio out of school, but uh, the re- real reason for that was I did work experience in a sports law firm. I thought I thought it's full sports law was the way to go, and yeah. then I realised after one week of year eleven work experience, I didn't want to work in the office. <laughs> so, so I sort of did the did the maths and worked out what what options there were that that were in an office and physio was it. So my passion grew over time, but you know I knew I loved sport, but that yeah, the physio was something that I sort of grew into. Yeah, and it was at a physiotherapist that you had met where you where you got introduced to the role, or yeah. take us through why physio got opposed to yeah. I guess, the tactical technical side, or or yeah. was, other um, roles. I well, I had seen a physio with a back complaint, so probably not uncommon for taller young guys. And the physio was a, a, a guy called Amir Tackler, who's still practicing here in Melbourne. He don't know if he was in gymnastics that type of thing, but he's a really short fella. And yeah. I remember he had to stand on a box. <laughs> So it sets my back. And, <laughs> but, he, but he had good energy about him. And, you know, I, you know, I just sort of thought I'd do that. I could see myself doing something like that. And then I rocked up at physio school and took it from there. Yeah. And it, it's not an easy feat from anyone that I've heard that's completed their physiotherapy degree. And take us through for those listening in that are thinking about it or perhaps they're, they're currently just started the, the degree. Yeah. Take us through the demands of the yeah. so course. I always was at Collingwood as a player at the time. So yep. I was part-time physio, which which worked all right, actually. Things have become a bit more professional in AFL since. Mm-hmm. So I was able to, we, we, a Tuesday morning sample, we'd go down a curve for road, be done by 8am or something like that, and I'd get off to uni. Yeah. And yeah, look, physio is a fun degree. It, it well, used to be two-thirds girls enrolling physio, which is interesting. Yeah. I, don't think, I don't think the proportions are... Probably a bit better balanced in sports physio. Once mm-hmm. we get to the pointy end, there's probably better working conditions in some of the other physio streams, you know, some of the hospital work and that type of thing. But yeah, it, it, things may have developed a bit since then, but a couple of years of um, heavily theory based work, maybe biomechanics, a lot of what there's out there, exercise and so on, would have studied. And then moving to more the practical stuff, yeah, getting out in the hospitals and sports clinics and the field and, and learning like everything, I reckon, learning a lot yep. of stuff stuff on the job. Getting your hands dirty, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so early on, the the degree is a lot more clinical, is it? More medical-based. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of theory sort of required. Yep. You know, anatomy, physiology, even pharmacology, all the different sort of base, base things. Yeah, that's what I, th- I think some of the units now have gone to a model where they'll combine streams, you know, the podiatrists and even the expert science and... Speech pathology, all those different streams will study together for the first year or two and then go off into their different directions. Yep. And you touched on being a professional athlete at the time of doing your studies. At what point did you transition into undertaking being a physiotherapist by trade? Yeah, so I, by the time I got delisted, I'd finished 
equivalent of a two and a half years of physio, I reckon. Yep. Yep. Which actually was pretty good timing because the hardest thing to do if you're in a, a medical student or a physio student in professional sport or, or Olympic sport or public mm-hmm. public system is uh, is the placements. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the timing works pretty well for me. So I knocked off the placements over the next year and a half. And uh, yeah, well, what I actually did was I then just thought, oh, you know, let's get out of Melbourne as far away as I could. I went, I went over and did some voluntary work for a soccer team in Ghana, oh, um, wow. in Africa. And we just spent three months there with yeah. just, just helping out. Didn't really... Had you hooked that up? Didn't necessarily know what I was doing. <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, I know that was just a volunteer volunteer program. So yeah, anyway, the parents see yeah. they were they remember it. They were in the top league of Ghana, but they had no they had no fans because they were owned by the power company and every other team had a location and <laughs> local people supported them. So that was that was pretty good fun. And yeah, uh, yeah so that's that's where at Melbourne Victory sort of you know people say we haven't really worked in soccer before. It, it's largely true. <laughs> I did have a really short stint in the Ghanaian Premier League. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And when you when you took on that role, was that when you recognised that elite sport and working with athletes, team sports was was where you wanted to go with your career? Yeah, I, th- I think so. And I think uh, in my AFL, my short-lived AFL career, I had a broken leg and a, a maybe oh, six to nine month rehab period. Yeah, and, uh, and I sort of got to work with a rehab coach there, Chris Howley, who's, who's still around the traps. And uh, yeah, I really liked the work he was doing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I thought, well, you know that. That sort of seems a pretty good mix, and, and that was what really led me to. So I finished my physio degree, and I went on and did exercise physiology post grad, right. just, yep. just to get my head around more of that exercise science side. And yeah, really try to find be someone who can live in both those spaces, that medical space and the and the performance conditioning space as well. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, EP. How does that? Those that aren't aware, how does that sort of differ from a, a physio? I guess you have physiotherapist, EP, and then strength and conditioning coach. How do you sort of see yeah. that? So, I mean, a physio and EPs both have sort of accreditation through, oh, I know, a, a generalized, it's got APRA here in Australia. Governing body. Governing, like governing body. body. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they both work, sort of, their, their work overlaps a bit, I suppose. Yep, yep. School system and best, you know, best practices, they work together. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in uh, even in sport, you, you sort of certainly saw this in Paralympic sport, Olympic sport, where yeah, physiologists and physios need to really work hand in hand, and interventional yep. coach as well. You know, there, there's part of the challenge of integrating a really good sport, science, sports medicine team is getting everyone to be able to be comfortable to work together, mm. and and also you know let let people play their strengths at the right times. I think. Yeah, for sure. No, well said, mate. And you, and you mentioned Chris and yeah. Who who are some other strong influences as you were developing and sort of honing your craft at this point of your career? Yeah, I did. People at every stage, generally the leaders I worked with. So Malthouse and Mick Malthouse was a coach at Collingwood when I played there and worked there. And David Butterfin was a high forwards manager. Both really people focused leaders. I sort of learned a lot from them and, and took a took a lot away um, from how they approach things. And then you know Neil Craig, John Worsfold, those type of people. At, at Essendon, sort of were had really had different ways of approaching things that, that I'm really yeah. appreciated. In Paralympic sport, there's a lady, Kate McLaughlin, who's a chef to mission for the last, or she'll be chef to mission again in Paris, but she's an incredible leader. That is a massive undertaking to take a Paralympic team to Paralympic Games, and uh, she just nails it cycle after cycle. And then, yeah, well, I mean, look now, now you know, Tony Popovich and you know, diff- again, sort of different leadership styles and different different people, which is always the most. <laughs> There's something you said for staying somewhere and really getting stuck into things, but the, the, the more uh, the more different people I work with, the more you the more you learn as well. So I sort of appreciate that. And then um, yeah, the other influence, other influence like most is their family. Sort of came from re- you know sporting family. Mum in sports admin and dad AFL player. My sister Olympic gold medalist. So oh wow, plenty of plenty of people influencing me along the way. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic, mate. That's sporty sporty family would have must have been competitive. Going up. <laughs> I, was, I was the the runt of the family. Know that. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's that's impressive. The crows, hey. You talked about different different leadership styles. Mick and Dave with people focused, and and then Neil Craig and, and Worsfold. So, what's one that you sort of leaned into? What well, I guess. Yeah. What do you see your sort of leadership style? And good, and good yeah, question. that's some oh. significant leadership positions. Yeah. yeah. To think that I still keep that. People first focus from early on. I think yep. Colin did well at the time. I reckon from Craigie, I really took a performance focus. 
and how to keep that in front of mind. Yep. Yeah. So, and then, yeah, I know that's such a hard question to answer. There's, there's so, I think, I feel like how I try to lead or how I try to yeah, create a positive performance environment and support our practitioners is influenced by all those people. Yeah. And yeah. When, when those two things pop up, like, is it in your, when you've got time to, I guess, think about things, do you lean on a certain philosophy in terms of maybe when you're stuck on which way to go? With challenging decisions, you're like, okay, well, people first is a strong belief. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lean on that, or is it, well, we're a performance. Yeah, you know I mean, like, how do you go? Yeah, on that? yeah, it's good, good. I, uh, how does it influence your decisions? Well, I guess. Gen- I, the probably biggest driver or biggest thing I think about is sort of starting with the end in mind and preparing for that. If if you generally make keep that front of mind, making decisions, I think that's pretty important to me. Yeah, and, and then. You, yeah, but also there's always a line where you're never sacrificing someone. You're trying to, you know, keep up, keep people well, and remembering, you know, we're playing sport. Not yeah, there's plenty more to people's lives than than just what goes on at the club. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well said, mate. Love that. It's good. Yeah, because it's it is challenging at the end of the day. Like you, you're judged, obviously on wins, but at the same time, you know, if you don't. If players don't feel like you care and you treat them as people, you treat them like robots, you're going to lose them pretty quickly, which, like you said, think of the end result. You're probably not going to get a conducive performance environment with that as well long-term. Like you said, sustainability. For sure. So, so I think, yeah, great great advice for yeah, strength leadership coaches or anyone working in sport and, and, and in leadership. What about for yourself, mate? What are some of your favourite ways to develop your methods? Is it, you know, leaning on your network that you've built up over the years? Is it research podcasts? How, how do you like to self-develop yourself? Yeah, I mean, I did a, a hell of a lot of formal study. <laughs> like I reckon I worked out from prep to when I finished my doctorate was 30-odd years, just nonstop. So that, that was always in the background. Yeah. Um, look, I, I just really try to follow my interests. Right now, I'm doing the Latrobe performance health, female performance health modules, which are ace. I mean, that costs 50 bucks and it's incredible. It's like the, yeah. the level of presenter in, in that is outstanding. And I'm learning a heap, you know. So, yeah, it's interesting. Interestingly, one thing John Worsfold sort of brought to my attention was a sort of model of professional development that was developed in critical care nurses, emergency department nurses, where people develop from novice to expert. And then each, you know, through competent, Proficient, whole different stages, but but each at each of those stages, you learn differently. So, as a novice, you're best to be given a lot of structure, and usually you're best to be taught by someone who's at a competent level, not necessarily not necessarily a master. Yeah, master sort of loses a bit of memory of you know the There's structure, the structure, the structure, and how and how how that initial learning happened. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and then and then as you sort of become more proficient or masterful of things, not to say I'm masterful of anything, but as you sort of move along that journey, you, you learn more by talking to other people at a similar level, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a nuanced way. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's I always try to remember that. Is there something that I feel like I'm you know novice level at? Then yeah, I really seek out that sort of structured. Formal learning, formal yeah. learning, and then, then if yeah, there's yeah. something something that I've spent enough time in to become proficient at, then I yeah tend to reach out to other people in at a similar level. Yeah, I like that. I've never had, I've never heard someone break it down that way, but it makes a lot of sense. You can apply that to anything. Yeah, it, 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 and I think in terms of athlete development plans or performance plans, which is an area which I'm quite passionate about, it seems really important to remember that as well. That there's a pathway and different levels of learning. You know, you sort of think, well, some yeah, some clubs where there's a whole lot of freedom given to a group and other clubs where there's high level of structure. Yeah. And, and you know, I think both of those things can be important at different stages of an athlete's development. So really sort of nailing that's important as well, I reckon. Yeah. And on that, what at what point is that an age thing for you or is it other markers that you would measure an athlete's level of maturity to start having some flexibility around there? Yeah, what do you what do I reckon? It's not only age premature twenty eight year olds. Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. But uh, yeah, look, I think the the maturity time in a system. Yeah, okay, a, tra- a trust element. That yeah, well, well right. I think again, and there, there are some sort of traits as people move through this sort of novice, advanced, beginner, competent, proficient, expert framework, and then, yep. you, know, you can. It's not a bad way to look at it as well. You know, what what sort of traits is someone showing? Are they able to are they able to make a 
decision quickly about something you know that has good rationale or or are they even at that point where they can make it intuitively and make a good decision so yeah i wouldn't say it's as simple as as someone's age but yep. it's not it's not a bad way to not a, probably not a hopeless way to do it either yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's I guess it's a simple way. Like you sort of the NFL clubs, one to four years are in an academy potentially, and then but then it it, it is so like you mentioned, it, it's a fair gap. And just because someone's the age of thirty doesn't mean they've um, got <laughs> no, that's uh, right. The right. And I've, over my career, there, there are some senior athletes who thrive with the structure as well. It's important to remember that that you, know, you might find some younger athletes that really struggle with too much direction and. The, the the challenge there is knowing that they they do need it, so yeah, maybe you just got to get to ride that out at times. But at the other end, yeah, there are some athletes who just there are some things they just don't can't be bothered thinking about, you know. Yeah, um, and, and they actually, actually really appreciate it. Yeah, you know, I don't think there's nothing wrong with that either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great, great. And then how would that look? But for, for the SNCs listening in that potentially are looking after a group where there is a, a you know different group of athletes at a different level, so open age, I guess. How would that look in the in the gym or on the field or in rehabilitation, do you think? Yeah, well, the amount of time and, and direction you're giving them. You know, I think we've got to be really mindful of, of what we say, what we provide, that, that, you know, if we provide too much and say too much, it loses some of its impetus. And, and if we, are, yeah, just getting learning and each day about our athletes and communicating with them and, and getting a feel for what they do best with and, and also watching them grow and being able to adapt as they, you know, carry on their journey as well. So, yeah, look, there, there might be differences in programming, might be differences in level of autonomy. There might be differences in just, you know, the level of care and time you take with each of those athletes to, to yeah. help them get better. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And going back to your career journey, so after Ghana, was it straight to Collingwood in that rehab role or was there yeah. a role in between? Yeah, I worked. I did work as a private practice physio for a couple of years, which I didn't mind. I didn't mind actually. And then, yeah, I did my ex phys placement at the Pies. Yep. And then stepped into a full time role after that. How did you find that going from an athlete a few years prior to now being a staff member? Yeah, it was all right. Like it was, it was the same environment, which was comfortable for me. Yep. Uh, but yeah, look, I, I, I saying that, I, I, I think it's different when you've only been there three years and gone and come back where it was I, I see some players who spend 15 years at a club and then start a, a role and you just sort of wish they would go somewhere else for them yeah for sure but I think yeah it was for me it was quite comfortable yeah and and for those that aren't aware of what a rehab coach does what what what's sort of like a, a typical day or what's the, yeah. the key responsibilities of a rehab coach in an AFL club yeah so it really is I would do very little hands-on physio in the rehab role, but but I'll mm-hmm. you know some at some at times. I think there's different rehab physio roles around that have varying levels of hands-on sort of acute treatment. Yeah, but I, but I would you know in, in a long-term rehabilitation, I would have a um, a plan, work closely with the physios and the S and C, and just really give that player structure and attention and and a really yeah high level of care each day. In terms of their rehab, yep. and then and then the, you know you have your, your guys are missing two to four weeks, who you're trying to get that balance between conditioning, recovery, and, and that reintegration into into football. So yeah, they're, they're, they're the types of things that that would fill a day for a rehab coach, a rehab physio. Yep, and yet you, you can be you know no doubt dealing with some challenging cases because being really you know players want to play football, they don't want to be in rehab. What would be some of your advice for? coaches that are currently in a rehab role in terms of supporting athletes during those challenging times of long-term rehab? Yeah, I think. I know. Yeah, you don't necessarily want players to love spending time with you because although generally generally they're pretty keen to get back and play. But I think that one of the keys for me is just taking the, the personal approach and the time to listen each day. You know, have a plan and, and largely stick to it, but listen, be be aware that rehab is often two steps forward, one step back, helping a player with that expectation. Yeah, and just, just providing them with that, yeah, true north and direction they need. And, and, and I'm a big believer in linking everything they do to to the field, you know, to the field or to, the, to their return, you know. So keeping things purposeful is also something I, I recommend. And generally, there's not much issue with motivation, that type of thing, when the athlete sees a purpose. Yep. 
Oh, fantastic. And so how long were you in that rehab role at Collingwood at the Pies? Yeah, so it was three years, I reckon. That included the 2010 Geelong Grand Final and replay. Yep. And a couple of incredible um, altitude training camps we did through that time as well, whether you believe in altitude training or not. It was they, That was, it was ahead awesome. of its time, wasn't it, at that they were, time? They were awesome, awesome camps. <laughs> a lot of fun. And, you know, some really good training. And there's something to be said about climbing a mountain, whether the altitude you know, the effects of the altitude aside. So yeah. that yeah, that was that was an incredible time. And then, yeah, again, when I started this and then I was in rehab sort of role as well. So would, would have done a good five years of that. It, it, look, even now in my role at Victory, one of our women's players did RACL in the first round of the season. And so rather than have our physio who was working with the team have to work, include her rehab attention when, you know, he needed to be focusing more on winning the championship, I'd sort of done a bit of rehab work with her to take that, yeah, take take that lead and and really support the practitioners with the team who are going to going to be playing and competing as well. So yeah, still like to keep a little bit of that rehab work going. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. I said so, yeah, it's it's a passion for you. It's something that you you love doing, helping athletes return to play. Yeah, absolutely. Hey there, hope you're enjoying this episode with Justin Crow. We're just going to take a quick break to hear a snippet from our interview with Darren Burgess, the current high performance manager at the Adelaide Crows. At the time of this recording, Darren Burgess was the high performance manager of the Melbourne Football Club. Okay, and, and what drills would be your go-to for, for improving their mobility? Yeah, I think it, it's trying to put them in as many different unpredictable environments as possible. There's sort of two aspects of mobility. For me, there's the the in-game mobility where you can just escape the situation. It's no secret that uh, I'll use South American soccer players can just see two or three people around them but they just find a solution to get out of it because they've been playing street football and foot's growing up, so they just have the lateral movement. It's not done through gym. It's not done through personal trainers. It's done through just repeat exposure to many different situations. And then there's the mobility you can do when you're away from the sport and that's that's where people like you or me can help them with a lot of flexibility type exercise dynamic movements to hear more from darren burgess make sure to scroll to episode 48 on the prepare like a pro podcast now back to the rest of the episode with justin crow thank you for listening hope you enjoy and that's the rewarding factor or is it the challenge that you like what, what's the aspects that you like of that rehab role I think it's rewarding. I, it, I really like spending time in that space between the medical and performance worlds, you know, like getting that, yeah, walking that balance beam where there's pressure to get it right and allow it to you to heal. And at the same time, you know, get someone fit and prepared and as ready as possible. That's 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 super interesting to me. That's where, where I like to spend a lot of my time. Yeah. Yeah, there's probably no better way of measuring how, how well you and the athlete have worked together than, than rehab. In some ways, isn't it? And on that, when when it doesn't go well, which no doubt that's going to happen because it's full time athletes, they're doing a lot of things and they're pushing the the boundary of their capacities all the time. How do you sort of personally, obviously, you look after the athlete, but to get your own headspace right before talking to the athlete, what are some processes that you do, or or, do you, or is it more just something you, yeah. you do with that quite naturally? I think, it's, I, think it's, I think it's okay to be disappointed. I sort of with staff within teams that I work with. Yeah, I'm always really aware and supportive of, you know, to, to some degree going through that emotional roller coaster. You know, an injury is, is really disappointing. You know, and a recurrence is really disappointing. Nevertheless, the athlete looks us for that, um, yeah, that, that direction, some sort of plan, you know, some level of clarity. And, yeah, you know, I think it's okay to ride that emotion. But when we are, yeah, when we got to remember what the athlete needs from us at those times and, and, it's usually to be, be a bit of a steady, steady head. Now that that was that was actually really important when we spoke about the lead into Paralympic Games with our HQ, our team in HQ, our physios and doctors and so on in HQ that, that we were always level. You know that you have athletes coming who just won a medal. We have athletes coming that are you know, disappointing performance. So yeah, our, our job was to keep a level environment there that players could or athletes could rely on when when they came in. Yeah, yeah, and when with that, like I imagine there's a sweet spot between you not being like rigid with them and not giving you, you're sort of meeting them halfway and, and being empathetic, but then at the same time, you, you're not trying to exacerbate the, the roller coaster. Is, is that right? 
Yeah, it's a good one. It's a really good one for young physios. You, you have to listen because the physio will cop all the complaints. Yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll cop the complaints about the food. They'll cop the complaints about the travel, everything. And if yeah, physio room or you know, even if there's a sea coach in that situation, yeah, it's important to listen and in some ways take the feedback on that, but but not not to not to buy in or to feed the yeah, the, the negative aspects of it. Yeah, yeah, and then. Talk us through moving from rehab coach to head of the department as a as high performance manager. At what point did you start working towards that goal, or did, was it something that was brought to you and and it came to you, so to speak? Well, that that was and that was an interesting time. That yeah, the the day the um, incident supplement sort of scandal broke, mm-hmm. uh, personally in the department at the time was stood down. Yeah, and I, and I was told, yeah, you, you're now in that role in the interim assembly team at two o'clock. <laughs> so, oh wow, <laughs> that that just happened quickly. Yep. And I, I was, I was largely out of my depth at that at that stage. But we, you know, did my best. We, and it fit the rest of the time. Essence, really, it, it, it was hard going in the sense that you well, spot fires all the time. Yeah, a lot of psychological scars, a lot of work just to rebuild trust and, and support both staff and athletes through an incredibly difficult time yeah so and, and yeah you know mate you know i learned a lot and sort of developed a lot through that time but in, in no way was it was it easy and then not mm. something not something that i was targeting to do yeah right ambition to do at that time yeah okay so it was literally put on you and what was your first impression with it was it excitement or was it more like oh this is oh, it was, no look it no, I don't know. It was just sweet. It was it was all reactive at that time. We you just, just had, had, to, had, to, yeah. had to react to what to what was happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what was your support? Yeah, obviously, uh, being the manager being stood down. What did you have a support team around? Did you just bring your team members in that, for that year, or was it not until that year ended? We well, yeah, we did. Really, that was yeah. That, no opportunity to bring anyone new in, and it wouldn't have been appropriate given what everyone had been through. Even for a couple of years after that, it was sort of yeah, I felt like more out of, out of respect and everything else that, that we needed to keep some stability and support people through yeah the medium term as well. So yeah, by by yeah by the time the last couple of years before I finished there, you know, I sort of had the opportunity to be a bit more proactive and actually yeah start to form some more systems about how to do things but i would say that, that largely early on we were we were reacting and and just doing our best in in a difficult circumstance yeah and um knowing what you know now like what did you learn through that challenging period yeah i, I think i learned a lot about just keeping calm listening listening better and yeah all less less the technical things i think less the technical you know sports science human performance things more more mm-hmm. the more the the softer skills through that period, I think, were what I mostly took away. Yeah, and then was so from your role from 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 Essendon Football Club going into the Paralympics, I believe. Yeah, and, yeah. How so did that, that come about? So they Paralympics Australia has a number of officers around Australia, and they have one in Melbourne that's at the base of the hangar. So I had to walk down two flights of stairs to start my new job. <laughs> wow. Paralympics. But that was that, that, that was incredible. And I would happily, if it wasn't that Melbourne Victory came knocking, I would happily still be there. An incredible organisation, do great work. You know, support really professional, high level, high performance programs with, with para athletes. And yeah, you know, you know what? The one thing I did learn about para sport is it attracts practitioners who are in it for the right reasons. People mm. who aren't in it for the glory; they're in it for their you know to help the athlete and mm. also. Smart practitioners who are capable of dealing with complex presentations and shifting, yeah. which is which is a trait of para sport. So the people working in that space are incredible, and I was fortunate enough to be associated with it for that period. Yeah, and talk us through what what a typical day and what were your sort of key responsibilities in that role. Yeah, so through the cycle, the lead up to the games, it was supporting and yeah, I suppose helping. Our athletes and sports prepare for the games. So, mm-hmm. a couple of our sports. I mean, goalball is a blind sport. As an example, gets no government funding. So, we would provide some servicing and support in that sports science, sports medicine space, as well as coaching other things. And then at the games, my role was to lead the HQ 
oh, that lead the, the medical HQ. So the doctors, physios, recovery physiology, psych, nutrition, that area. And yeah. in, in parasport, more so than Olympic sport, athletes rely on that space. It, some of our better funded sports have their own practitioners, but not to the extent of the Olympic Games. So mm-hmm. yeah, we, we, we had a really hot, high number of athletes use those facilities and uh, yeah look look it was a really challenging games with a lot of uncertainty leading in and you're just so proud of the group who went over there and what a great job they did and so yeah, yeah to, to support that australian paralympic team yeah and uncertainty with the times is it that true to the covid pandemic just starting yeah yeah so yeah, yeah this, this was for the tokyo game so there was yeah a reasonable level of doubt right up until the end that they may not go ahead, um, yeah. which is a difficult space to operate under. Um, oh, 100%. And then the actual nature of the games was challenging itself. You know, people weren't allowed outside the village except to go to their events. It was very much a bubble. We created an even tighter bubble within the Australian building. Yep. We, we decided not to allow athletes to go to the dining hall, which is a big call. In, in para-sport, the dining hall was a place where athletes and para-athletes realise or, or get to see yeah, hey, I'm not alone here. There's a real community of para-athletes out there and we didn't do that lightly. But but we we also had athletes on our team with 40% lung capacity and different medical conditions. We put them at really high risk if they caught COVID. Sure. So we we played the safe route, brought us closer together and uh, in the end, we we had a really good game. Yeah, fantastic. That's awesome. What a great result and and no doubt well-deserved for the team as well as, of course, the athletes. What, what were some of your sort of proudest moments during the, the games? Oh, look, we had some of the athlete performances were incredible. Look, Rachel Watson's a swimmer who, yeah, she had quite severe convulsions after her heat and went on to win a gold medal in the final. Just an incredible effort. Yeah, the, the wheelchair marathon gold medal was, yeah, super highlight. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, yeah, they, they, you go on, on and on about some of the efforts in the games, and they're not in the Paralympic Games. The highlights aren't necessarily gold medals. They're some really good performances by athletes and, and teams. You know, the gold ball team would never won a game at the Paralympic Games before. Went on to win two be re- and be really competitive against Turkey, the eventual gold medalist. So yeah, we made yeah so some really really big highlights. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that yeah Melbourne victory. Uh, came knocking. Talk us through the role that you're currently in, and uh, it sounds like you're you're across yeah, a couple of different uh, areas there. So you're heavily involved by the sounds of it. But yeah, take us through. Yeah, yeah. So my role at Melbourne Victory is across the A League Men's, A League Women's, and Melbourne Victory Academy programs. So yep. I support the sports science, sports medicine teams within each of those parts of the club. I think it's a really progressive role. I'm really Please, that Victory put it on because it, it gives some great extra attention in the women's space. It helps us, you know, support our athletes to, to a higher degree in the men's space. And yeah, in, you know, in, in the academy space, we, we just have so much opportunity to grow and, and do things well there, as, you know, as well. So it, yeah. it's a big role. I spend a lot of my time day to day with the men's team. And, and you know, the, the seasons will run concurrently starting in November this year, which 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 will be a lot of fun actually. I can't wait. Yeah, it's yeah. It sounds like three full time roles, mate. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we 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 have some we have some very good practices on the ground. And uh, as an example, I don't have a critical match day role, so I can I can go to the game and be there to support people and jump in if needed. But yeah, but the team can travel without me. We can do everything it needs on match day without me, and that that's the idea. That I'm yeah. really primarily there to support our practitioners. Yep. And you mentioned it's a progressive role. Had, are you the first person that's been in this role at Victory, or was someone in, in the role prior? Yeah, no, it's a new, it's a new role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what are some of the things that you like about that role that you think other codes should should follow? Well, I like. I think we see it in other codes. I don't know that there's many that would be across men's and women's programs. In part of, I think in I think of AFL. I think part of the reason AFL is because that high performance manager role is still so hands on. But it doesn't have to be, I reckon, and that you know you can still find that balance. So, yeah, I wonder wonder if other codes, as their women's programs grow, if they don't start to look at you know a model where there can be leadership and direction across programs and and some consistency and support. That yeah, rather than have these programs running so so separately in some ways up to their own devices. Yeah, yeah. So, when you say hands on, would it would you 
on a typical day be running warm-ups and field conditioning sessions and programming those sort of things or you're purely there to like as you mentioned to support the staff and largely to support the staff and the communication with the coach yeah also i do yeah jump in on the tools in all sorts of ways you know if physio can't make it i'll i'll treat if i've jumped on the massage tables and massage players when a massage service hasn't come before if we have a play in rehab who's better off inside then to allow everyone else to go out and run the session i'll stay inside and work with that player yeah i'll step in and take a warm-up if, if we're desperate but yeah. That, that's yeah part, part of i suppose the um the helpfulness of my background is that I, I can sort of work across a few different areas to plug the gaps but also yeah. be, be in a way to support people not to do it not to do their job for them and on that with with how would how do you like to conduct your your meetings is it one a day is it the start of the day is it reflecting at the end of the day you know talk us through meetings on a yeah. daily basis, but also uh, weekly as well, and then oh. how that feeds into feedback from a, uh, you know, uh, maybe half a year, mid year sort of review if that happens. Or I yeah. like I like to run through the player list quickly, player by player, each day when we, when we've got all the information before we train, mm-hmm. and then I mean that's a really important meeting so everyone walks out with the same message on the same page, mm-hmm. and, we, and we can have a clear provide a clear direction to the coach and outside that, I don't really like meetings but we would yeah weekly weekly we would get together and probably take a bit of a broader view make make sure we're incorporating some of the diet well-being nutrition aspects from practitioners who aren't necessarily on the ground every day as well yeah and I do think it's worth in season stepping back sometimes and just think one exercise as an example used in the past is just look at a clock and you know, which players are overcooked, which players are underdone, who's in the sweet spot at the moment. Just just actually throw up the magnets and get a feel for, okay, where's each individual layers, anything we're missing? Yeah, are, are we developing them as well as we can? Yep. I think it's good good to step back when you can, but as everyone in pro sport knows, it's, yeah, that it's the weekly cycle, competitive cycle can make, can make that difficult. And, and I suppose being a little bit removed from that cycle in my role is helpful for, for that. Yeah, so you can have that sort of big picture perspective. Yeah. And on that, whether a player is thinking on the edge of uh, high risk or they're in the sweet spot or do you sort of go off, what do you lean in most in your decision-making? Is that uh, off objective markers, subjective, gut feeling, coach instinct? Like talk us through how you sort of make those calls. Yeah, usually in that exercise where we throw out the magnets, most of it's instinct. But remembering that we're looking, the information we're looking at, we're all looking at every day as well, so... You're taking that information in. in it's informed. Yeah, yeah. To, to, to make an informed appraisal, right or wrong. Yeah, and I, I would say I've really changed my view on testing over my career. Yeah, I spoke to, before he passed, there's a guy who won the IOC medal for physiology, Ben Saltine, and I asked him what the most important thing that happened in his career was, what the most important thing he learned in his career and he said every time you take something from an athlete give something back and he was talking about testing that every time you test you take you take a little bit of the athlete's time a little bit of the energy even if it's largely non-invasive it's still their data and information and we can be in danger of taking 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 and if what we're taking is informing important decisions and influencing decision makers then, it, then it's a waste it's, it's just taking from an athlete who is giving a lot of other things as well so I well, I really do believe in objective testing and making decisions based off that. I'm also really careful of not testing things that we're not, it's not really useful to us. And, and also it doesn't give, it doesn't enable us to give the athlete something back that, that can be tangible. Yeah. And what would be some examples that you've sort of used to do that now you currently wouldn't test? Look, we don't, yeah, we don't use any of the Nordboard style force plate any of that stuff anymore. Actually, another good example is we don't take wellness information anymore mm-hmm. with our group. We do in the women's space and we do in the academy space. I mean, in the men's space, every player shakes every coach's hand when they arrive, mm-hmm. which, which, which actually provides an environment where there's not going to be a player you haven't seen before they go out to train. So if your player's the opportunity to bring something up, you have a chance to read their body language. And I think at the end, if the player's not going to report to you in that environment, then they're probably not reporting on their wellness either. So we just took out that extra thing we were taking from the player, which was every player having to remember then to their wellness information. Yeah. And yeah, and roll without it. Yeah. And how have you found? Have you found- it's been fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's been fine. <laughs> yeah. That's um, for my players to do wellness every day. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, ta- it, it, it takes that out of it as well. You know, that dealing with that non-compliance that can it can crop up. Yeah, I remember one of the coaches I worked with, Bomber Thompson. He used to say, "Well, what if I just took all the GPS away? What would you, what would you do? Yeah, you have to. Yeah, you have to talk to people. Yeah, no, yeah, I sort of remember that. You always get that in the back of mind as well. You know, the, it goes yeah. to the people first. So yeah, 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 yeah. Don't, don't, don't get objective at the expense of yeah the time with the people. Yeah, on that one, I, I, yeah, but, uh, I like that. That's not something I've heard of before. Is that yeah, the handshake? So is that with just the coaches, or that's actually all staff yeah. members that talk uh, to you? I've never seen it in AFL, and then in oh. uh, perhaps it's it's common across soccer or A League or international football. I'm not sure, but yeah. but that's that's a respect thing, and it, it's it's a not it's a nice thing. It's probably not great mm-hmm. COVID, COVID practice, but it's it's pretty, <laughs> it's also yeah, a really nice way to. Make sure you, you've seen everyone every day. Yeah, yeah. And so that's something you're involved in. You you're, you partake in. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, if, 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 when I arrive, I shake every other coach's hand and and each players. And if they come to me, or I come to them. Yeah, yeah. Nice. And yeah, you know, we we talked about briefly some challenges and some some highlights. But looking back at your career so far, what would be your biggest challenge that you faced, and what have you learned from it? Yeah, I think uh, the logistics of the Paralympic game was just incredible. The, the scale of some of the logistics required for different athletes and bringing that all together it was just a, a massive undertaking. Throw COVID in there as well. Yeah, particularly in the context of COVID, like what one of our the coaches in in one of the sports is on dialysis, and so we took over basically a shipping container of dialysis fluid and facilitated that that could continue through the games. Yeah, all sorts of dietary requirements and different yeah different individual needs that that are really important and you can forget about you know a wadded sport if you're not careful but yeah we, we just really had to nail down yeah that, that that was that was a huge challenge and, and an incredibly rewarding one by the time we got to the end of it yeah yeah amazing so that would be also a proudest moment by the sounds of it as well yeah i think i think so i think so look i was yeah Really proud to win the AFL Premiership. I was really proud to win the FA Cup and, and the women's, A-League women's with our girls this year. Proud to play an AFL game. I don't know, I think sport, yeah, you're not, even if you're not winning things, the sport is constantly rewarding and providing highlights. Yeah, that, that, that's why we're in, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And the you mentioned as well, like going on that Colling, you know, Collingwood success, the the amps that were, were going on, that was pretty I imagine at the time pretty forward thinking. Is it? And you mentioned that the psychological benefits that can come from those challenging camps. Is that something that you've installed into your philosophy as well with preseason camps? Yeah. Look, uh, preseason camps have been more difficult lately. <laughs> but yeah, of um, I, I think, yeah, what I think about a good preseason camp, I, and it depends when it is in a preseason. You know, it could could be highly match focused, sort of in the final preparation phase, around sharpening group up. There's real benefits to getting a group together. It can be really helpful for a dietitian and a conditioning coach and so on to see how people live and, and behave and, and provides opportunity to work with players around some of those things that can be harder when everyone's back in the home environment. Yeah, there's a lot of advantages to a camp, I think. And largely, I, w- I would expect the, the, the team coach to, to drive the direction of the camp and the rest of us to fall in line, mostly. Yep. Yeah, I'm sad, mate. We're moving into the personal get-to-know-Justin side of the podcast now. First one, you don't necessarily have to have one. Not everyone does. But do you have a favourite inspirational quote or, or a life motto and you like to think of? I do. It doesn't roll off the tongue, but I do like to, the idea of prepare rather than protect. I always sort of remind myself of that. And the other thing I sort of I, – I, like I, t- I go to a phase where I write something on my notepad each – and for a period of time, just to keep it in front of mind, like, yeah, one recently is how do you make people feel? It's really important when you, particularly when you're working with a staff member, to have an awareness of how you, how you make them feel um, because cause most of what they'll remember will be how they felt, not necessarily the information that was shared. So, yeah, that's probably the other one recently I've just been keeping in front of mind. And with your role, uh, like, how much from a mental energy perspective do you, would you be thinking of staff members' development in, with a ratio compared to athletic sort of development with the athletes? Like is it a 50-50 or is it like a sway more towards one than the other? Yeah, I, I try to keep a large focus on, on staff. Might, Sounds not, like might, might, might not be quite 50-50, but it yep. might, be, might be 30. 
said, yeah. Yeah, athletes, athletes inevitably take a lot of everyone's focus as they should, but you know, it, I do think it's really important, that, and and also really important for the athletes that that we are supporting our staff. Yeah. Next one in your work life, what makes you angry? Do you have any pet peeves? Oh, I was going to say too much testing. It really annoys me. <laughs> and testing without purpose. <laughs> yep. That'll that'll get me going. Yep. And, yep. and favorite way to spend your day off, mate. Yeah, with 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 my my young family. Yeah, I mean, adventures with my daughter. There, that that really recharges my batteries for sure. Yeah, awesome. Well, yeah, we'll start, we'll start to wrap up the show. What what's on the horizon for two thousand twenty two? It sounds like there's a fair bit going on at, at Victory. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have well, the new A League men's and A League women's seasons are really exciting. So the, the women's season has been expanded to twenty weeks, which is eight. Yeah, really great move in, in the right direction. Obviously, there's the men's World Cup in November, December. Yeah, which is pretty fun to watch, <laughs> yeah. and then and then the women's World Cup next next sort of June July. So there's a lot going on in the football space over this yeah this sort of how 2022, that, 2023 period. How will that? How will your role sort of be with those players that are involved in the World Cup squads? Yeah, so we will the A League will shut down. A League men's will shut down during the men's World Cup. Yep, which will mean our players yeah who who are lucky enough to be in those squads will will just go. I'd be yep. surprised if we have any inter- other international players in uh, their international squads, but it's possible. Mm-hmm. And then we'll, yeah, we'll keep the other guys ticking over in the meantime. And then, and then the Women's World Cup will fall outside of the season, which, yeah, it's really exciting. I, I just hope that makes a really big splash here in the country and we can, women's sport as well as soccer can, can really grow from that, that event. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go the, the, the Aussies, they eh? represent. <laughs> we're, we're, we've qualified. It's, yeah, super yeah. exciting. Yeah. Awesome, mate. Well, yeah, thank you so much for, for jumping on the show and sharing with us your journey thus far. Yeah, firm believe that success leaves clues, so it's great to have someone that's worked in different codes, been in the athlete's perspective as well as the staff member's perspective. So, yeah, really appreciate you coming on. I've taken heaps from it, and no doubt that listeners will too. If anyone wants to get in touch with yourself, where, where's the best place to, to connect? Yeah, just shoot, shoot us a note on LinkedIn, and we can take it from there if you want to reach out, no problem. Yep. Well, we'll add the LinkedIn link in the show notes, guys. And thank you for, yeah, for those that have tuned in. If you tuned in halfway through, make sure to watch the start of the show. We'll release it next week on our podcast. But for now, you can watch it from the very start on our YouTube channel. Um, Were you going to say something there, Justin? I was going to say thanks. Thanks for having me. Ah, Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, mate. Thank you. And our next live chat, guys, will be a collaborative one with Australia's leading high school strength and conditioning coaches. That will be next Thursday, the 4th of August at 7 p.m. So make sure to jump on that one. It'll be a ripping event. I'll see you guys then. Cheers again, Justin. Thanks, mate. Hey, Jack. See you, mate. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content, such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian from Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be and then game changes game changes whatever that might be and look it probably keeps me in a job but that it does drive me insane because sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and you know and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary it unravels everything that i've been working with an athlete for yeah yeah another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the prepare like a pro live chat show here's an example with academy member rama davies the friendly conditioning coach at the box hill Hawks. Welcome, Rama, to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man that. Uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And, yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. 
it was uh, I found it to be really insightful. Plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my my question to you was: you spoke quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat, um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did uh, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it, yeah, certainly, yeah, has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose... One thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just yeah opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single minded back then and um, you know thought there was one way of doing things and um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of you know asking a silly question or fear of judgment it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker um and yeah. and yeah like just yeah being open to sort of different things um because you never know what you might find it's just yeah there's so many people like great people out there knowledgeable people to learn off and there's plenty more where that came from if you would like to learn more then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review, or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.